Today's guest is someone who, if you love GAA, you'll know who it is. It's Enda McNulty, an All-Ireland winner, of course, and an All-Star with that great Armagh team under Joe Kernan. You're very welcome, Enda, to the programme. Thanks indeed Great for coming to be with you. Uh, Thank good, you very much. Good to have you. You're known first, I suppose, as a, as a GAA player. But, I mean, you have sort of stayed in that broad area of sports and you're very much involved in the whole area of sports psychology with big success, it has to be said. Very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time with a lot of very significant teams who are probably at the top of their powers when I happen to be in the backroom staff. So I'd be sad, very, very fortunate more than anything else, Shane. Yeah, just before we get to your choices, because you've borrowed heavily from that field for those choices, I'm thinking about that Armagh team you were on. And I mean, everyone from, you know, Joe Kernan to McGinney to the McEntee brothers, your own brother, mm. some big personalities. I mean, that was a team that played the game as much in the, in the mind as, as on the pitch. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. That team was a team of leaders and all of those leaders were really bought into the mental approach to the preparation. So they never would have scoffed at that or never would have sniggered at it. They were all very aware as to if you're going to become a top quality athlete, you need to develop your mind as much as you develop your body or as much as you develop your skills. Okay, let's get to your book choices. Your first one, Pure Sport, Practical Sports Psychology by John Kramer and Aidan Moran. Tell us about this book. Very passionate about this book because John Kramer was a lecturer of mine in Queens when I was playing Gaelic football. So it was brilliant to be able to go into the lecture hall and get a lecture from John Kramer about the basics and the principles of sports psychology. And then after the lecture, we had made him on the pitch in Queens bringing it into a practicality on the pitch. So in other words, bringing the theory into practice. So phenomenal man, big mentor of mine then back at Queen's and still today. So this book is a game-changing book in terms of the real basics about positive psychology, the real basics about performance and sports psychology. It applies to coaches, it applies to athletes, and anybody from playground to podium would benefit from this book. I'd be a big advocate of John and of his philosophy, as well as Aidan Moran, of course. Uh, did he kind of introduce you to sports psychology? Or like when you were playing with the club in, in Armagh, was sports psychology, was it a big thing back then? My father introduced me to sports psychology with that other book that we'll talk about later on. But John Kramer in Queens would have introduced me to, let's say, a much more intellectual version of sports psychology and most importantly then how to apply it. I remember in the lecture hall in Queens him asking a class of about 200 people how many of you want to work and end up working in sports psychology and maybe 10 hands went up and then he asked how many of you want to work in applied sports psychology on the pitch, on the track, make a significant difference to performance in practicality. So I remember I was the only hand in the audience that went up. Really? He really strongly, it was almost like a light bulb moment. I wanted to work on that and work in specialist performance psychology for the rest of my life. Thankfully, a big part of what we do now is in performance psychology. A lot of being good at sport. I mean, I know you say, and I've heard you say this before, you know, you weren't the most natural footballer and you had to work at it and you did a job and all that. But, you know, like you don't get to play inter-county football unless you can play a bit as well. I mean, how much of it is in the head and how much of it is just because you have a God-given talent? I don't really believe in God-given talents. If you look at Mozart, if you look at any of the elite performers in the world, if you look at Picasso, if you look at, let's say, Messi, and you read their story and you forensically analyse them, you'll know that they have spent a huge amount of time practising. I spent thousands of hours practising. And we know it's not just enough to practise. You need to do deliberate focus practice. So, of course, that's always the red thread amongst all elite performers. They have to spend thousands of hours with deliberate focus practice. And whether we say it's 10,000 hours or whether it's 6,000 hours, what's certain is it's a lot of hours. 
quality, deliberate, focused practice. Now, they have to be quite lucky and fortunate in terms of their genes. Mm. They need to have the genes, they need to have the right environment, they need to have the right mindset, of course they need to have the right psychology, as well as a very good coach and a very good group of people around them. I was lucky to have all of the above. Mm. Uh, was it Gary Player that said sort of the, the more I practice, the luckier I get or something? I think that was his Yeah, line. well I would actually say the better I practice, because a lot of people are yeah. practicing in all performance crucibles, but it's not about the practice, it's about the quality of the practice. So if you watch Brian O'Driscoll practice and at the end of a session, his intense focus is incredible. Rory McIlroy similarly, just watch them practicing and observe them and you'll see that the quality of their focus, you can almost see in their eyes that they're not just practicing, they're incredible in their deliberate practice. Mm. You mentioned your, your dad earlier. I, look, I suppose like all our fathers are, are big influences on us. How was he an influence in terms of sports psychology? Incredible influence in that whenever we were kids, he would introduce us to the importance of our mental approach, that if we were the biggest and the strongest and the fastest, it would not be sufficient, that we had to become the most mentally strong. We have to develop our resilience as well as our skills, as well as our tactical awareness and so on. So my father was and still is a very positive influence. Every time I go home to our man now, my dad is still firing more books at me, whether it's the psychology of sport or whether it's about leadership or about team. And our house in Arma on the foothills of Slave Gullion literally has books on every single wall so he continues to be a hugely influential person in my life mm. I'm just thinking of the type of position you played in when, like if you're marking a, a Gooch or a Mike Frank Russell or a, a um, Peter Canavan Peter Canavan yeah, yeah exactly yeah. that's kind of that is very much a mental game isn't it that's pure concentration I mean you let your concentration slip for a second and that guy's in on goal and the ball's in the back of the net it's all mental at that stage it's all mental because everybody playing in Crow Park on a Ireland final day or national league final day today it's all mental because we're all strong we're all fit everybody's now from a fitness point of view at the same threshold or there or thereabouts maybe there's five or ten percent of difference but mentally that's where the really biggest edge lies or you could argue is it mentally and tactically so definitely i knew when i was marking some of the aforementioned that i had a mental edge in them maybe they're more skillful than me i actually think cornerbacks and fullbacks have skills that maybe aren't as highly rated as the guy who can score a goal or a point so keep guy out of a match for 70 minutes or 72 minutes with no score and I was very lucky to have done that against some of those players. For me that's a major skill. Mm. Unfortunately we don't think it's as sexy or as cool as the guy who can score 1-3 or 1-4. Unless you're Italian and then they, they venerate the art of defending, don't they? <laughs> exactly. If you're a Maldini yeah. or you're a Franco Berizzi Well they view that as a skill and, it's and a something to be skill. celebrated. And um, I think we'll educate people in our sports in Ireland about how important those skills are as well as the scoring skills. Okay, let's move to your next book. The Inner Game of Tennis by uh, Timothy Galway. I mean, this guy is a big cheese in the area of sports psychology, isn't he? He's a big cheese. He's a key influencer. And in a way, he's like a cultural architect in sports psychology. And probably more than anything else, not because he's the best thinker, not because he's the most scientific or has done the most research or development. It's because he makes it most practical. This book, for all of your listeners, I would strongly advocate, even if there's nothing or no interest in tennis or no interest in sport. It's a really brilliant game-changing book in terms of understanding the impact that our self-one mind and our self-two mind can have on how much we trust ourselves, can have on how much we deal with a mistake in lifetime, whether it's in the tennis court or whether it's in life. And, I mean, how does he, in a practical sense, I mean, look, I'm not asking him to tell us all he says in the book, obviously, but in terms of dealing with mistakes, because, you know, when we make mistakes in life or on the sports field, there is a tendency, you know, to to lose focus, to lose concentration, to start beating yourself up. 
That's interesting. That's, that's actually the point he makes, Shane. He talks about that if you watch the tennis ball as it's coming through the air and you watch the seams coming towards you as it spins through the air, if you're so focused on that, well, then you're not focused really on what's going on inside your mind. So to a certain extent, is it is the play with an empty mind. And he gives real practical tips of how to delete the previous mistake and get really concentrated in the moment. And again, if you look at all the similarities between Galloway and all the other key thought leaders in psychology and performance, they're trying to, in essence, get you to play with an empty mind, almost a Zen and Eastern approach to how we perform. Interesting you say because I, I heard somebody, I can't remember who was talking about golf recently, and they were they were wondering, and, and maybe this is too simplistic, but they were saying, they were almost saying, with golf, is it one of those games where it's almost better if you're not hugely bright, if you don't overthink the game, that there is a danger when you overthink the game that you lose some of that flow. And I can relate to that as a footballer myself, because as a footballer, whenever I was reading these books, and I really unfortunately started to read the books on the bus on the way to the big games which was really stupid in a way because I was thinking too much You're thinking about not thinking Exactly and I was thinking about you know the key mental strategies as the game was going on thankfully I learned in the last four or five years to abandon the books on let's say Wednesday or Thursday so that Friday, Saturday, Sunday my only thought was playing so of course there's a danger of thinking too much about what's happening and that's what sabotages or almost holds back our performance I imagine though it's not like if you're going out for an All Ireland final and you know your county has never won an All Ireland before and you know you've you know you've had narrow defeats and all that kind of stuff. I mean, easy in theory to talk about staying Zen like. I'm sure quite difficult in practice though is it to achieve that yeah like all the clients we work with whether it's in business or whether it's in sport or whether it's in performance arts what we find is they find it really really challenging to get into that right mental state Galway gives a really good insight how to do it in a very simple way and he really inspires about the ultimate competition is within so the inner game of tennis, in essence, is about the game that we play within our own mind. If we get that game right, we'll get the game with our opponent right. And whenever I was at college reading these books and reading the inner game of golf, which, of course, is a follow-on, as you've said, yeah, Shane, golf is the ultimate mental game, isn't it's, it? It's one of, the, one of the most difficult. I wouldn't say it's the ultimate. I think there's a lot of really challenging mental I suppose, games. I suppose I was just thinking, for example, of the recent Masters and... Spieth. Uh, Spieth, but also before that in the first round, um, Ernie Els. Mm. And, you know, that whatever it was, a six-putt or a seven-putt. And, like, here you have this phenomenally talented guy who's won huge tournaments and just the psychology of the game he crumbles under the pressure I suppose Yeah when the scale of difficulty increases it makes you and the individual golfer really really fragile if they haven't done enough and sufficient and quality mental training and that's what we're talking about here quality focused mental training Okay, I want to ask you just before we move on to the next book because there's been a couple of guys who have very publicly sort of singled you out and said, look, you were a big, big influence in their career. Paul Galvin was one. Brian O'Driscoll, who of course works with Off the Ball here as well, but known as one of the greatest rugby players the world has ever produced. I mean, he's someone who said that you were a big factor in helping him, I don't know, regain his oomph or whatever uh, a number of years ago. I mean, how... When a player like that who has everything, who has all the skills comes to you, I mean, how do you start sort of diagnosing the issue and and sort of identifying what he or she needs to do? Well, firstly, Brian deserves all the credit there. I didn't really influence him. Brian took absolute control of his own approach, his own attitude to sport, his own mental approach. I was able to direct him in the right, let's say, avenue, put him in the right channel from in terms of his mental preparation. Now, what do you do whenever you meet Brian in the first instance? First of all, listen. 
I was very fortunate to have watched Brian up close in training because Michael Check used to invite me along to the training sessions. Some of them he'd say stay well in the distance and it'd almost be hiding in the corner of the pitch and none of the players knew he was even there. Just watching. Just watching. So I'd watched, I'd observed forensically Brian's maybe previous two or three years before that. Obviously all Irish fans had seen him playing for Ireland and for Leinster. So I was very lucky that I knew that he had really, really excelled maybe five or six weeks before the time that I met him initially. So I knew that there was nothing really broken. So the first thing is observe, listen, understand, but do that in much more depth than anybody else would bother to do. And I had done that comprehensively. So when I sat down with Brian, I was able to tell him of these specific instances, almost to the second, that he had scored tries or that he had beaten a man or that he had made a major tackle or that he had cleaned out a rook or whatever. And I knew the specific times that he had done that. So whenever I was talking to him, therefore, he knew that I was really willing to understand, really willing to, as you've said, diagnose him. And for someone like Brian O'Driscoll, who, you know, this guy knows the game inside out, I presume he, he's going to spot a spoofer a mile off. <laughs> Does that make a big difference when he says, OK, hang on, this guy actually has been watching me. This guy knows what he's talking about. Yeah, I think everybody, you know, can identify a spoofer. So I think either you say you don't know or you show you don't know. The one thing I was going to do with Brian was not going to spoof because he'd immediately would have walked out of the room. Yeah. What I did talk about was the areas that I could add value. I didn't get into rugby technical detail or tactical detail or strength and conditioning. Yeah, you weren't talking about clearing out rocks or anything like that. I was specifically talking about his mental preparation, his mental approach. Let's say how you could significantly improve from a mental point of view. Okay, you said earlier on that you didn't really believe in the idea of sort of God-given talent. Brian O'Driscoll might be one of those guys who might defy that. Another person who definitely would defy that as well is, is Michael Jordan. And you've, you've gone for his book, Driven From Within. Now, look, I, again, I have to put the same question to you. I mean, I, I'm not saying the psychology in his head wasn't important, but this is a guy who had it all. He had everything. It was like he was never going to be a bad player. But how did he get it all? That's the, in the book, it actually talks about how he got it all, how he wasn't picked on a basketball team as a kid, and how he got up at 6 a.m. in the morning to practice for three hours before school on the fundamentals. So again, talent is overrated. People need to have a certain level of talent. They need to be genetically gifted, obviously, but they also need to do the hard yards, practice the fundamentals. And Jordan's book is a master class in terms of the collaboration between business and sport and style and legend. It is a masterclass. It also, of course, identifies how this guy has improved himself as an athlete, as a basketball player, and maybe as the most iconic sports star of all time. Interesting you draw the parallel between business and sport, because one of the things that I I always find curious is how really top sports people and really top business people like spending time in each other's company. Now, I had sort of put that down to the fact that, like, you know, successful people like spending time with other successful people. But is it because it's ultimately the same characteristics that define them and that drive them? What we love doing is we love learning from all performance crucibles. I believe we can learn a lot from performance arts. So one of the guys I've spoke about very, very regularly in used talk is Podrick Moyles in Riverdance. This guy's done 5,500 performances. So I, I believe we can learn as much from him as I can from Brian O'Driscoll, as we can from Katie Taylor, as we can from Dennis O'Brien. So I think we need to learn from all those different performance crucibles and what I am love to do and what we're trying to do in our organisation is learn from all of the above rather than just singularly from sport because quite honestly I get bored just talking about sport what I love is talking about neuroscience we're going to speak up that in a few mm. seconds what I love is learning from the elite performers in Intel who currently in LeakSip are producing the best technology in the world now these guys are phenomenal in their performance so that is as interesting or more interesting for me now than watching the Dubs playing on National League final day 
And do you think psychology comes into the work, say, for example, that Intel? I know it is, because some of our biggest contracts are with the likes of the Intels or the Microsofts or the Facebooks and so on. So, of course it is. Psychology, as Galloway have said in the inner game of tennis initially, and then he wrote about the inner game of life. Psychology is in everything. Mm. Everything that every one of your listeners is doing today, there's psychology involved. Now, thankfully, sports psychology has started to open that up. It's opened up that major Pandora's box about possibilities if we get our psychology right. Okay. Our guest is uh, Enda McNulty, top sports psychologist, also, of course, a member of that Armagh team that won the All-Ireland back in uh, 2002. Rather, Um, We're going through his top five books. We so far have had Pure Sport by John Kremer and Aidan Moran, The Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galloway, and Driven From Within by uh, the great Michael Jordan. Your fourth choice, The Power of the Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy. This, he's an Irish guy, isn't he? Yeah, he's uh, partly Irish. Joseph Murphy, interestingly, Patrick Moyes spoke to the Irish team way back maybe seven or eight years ago and was asked by the team what was the most influential book that he'd ever read and he spoke about this book. This book is transformational because it does what it says in the tin. It tells you what the power of the subconscious mind is. And the power of the subconscious mind is incredible. If people could only learn how to tap into that power, if they could only learn how to direct that power in a positive way, if they could use that power, as Murphy talks about in the book, almost like the captain of the ship, let's say on the top of the ship, directing the ship towards the right goals or the right beacons. Unfortunately, most people don't understand that their ship is heading towards the rocks and their subconscious mind is programmed to head towards the rocks. So it's teaching and training ourselves using practical tips to go in the right direction, using our conscious mind to program our subconscious mind. Mm, So how do you do that? Because it sounds incredibly complicated. It sounds complicated, using very simple steps. So someone is using affirmation or positive statements we repeat over and over again that helps us program our subconscious mind. The second one is reduce our internal negative self-talk. So reduce the internal conversations that we have about ourselves that are negative, what they call almost automatic negative thoughts. Mm. Try and reduce the frequency of those and the illumination of those. Number two. Number three, in terms of our subconscious mind, making sure that we really, really orientate it towards a particular focus or direction using our conscious mind. In other words, what's our meaningful and powerful goals? And using creative ways of making them really programmed by writing them down over and over again, for example, in terms of scripting. So really intelligent ways of doing practical things to program our subconscious mind. Undoubtedly, that's what really successful people do, be it in in the world of sport or whatever. But I'm just thinking of someone like Tiger Woods. And I mean, he did that. He had those, he set out those goals, he drove for them. But I'm wondering, does it make you less pleasant as a person? I mean, Tiger Woods would be someone you'd find it very hard to empathise with. And you see him interviewed and... You know, to be honest, he comes across as a bit of a knob at times. I mean, can you can you get that balance between having that drive in sport, but also being a kind of a rounded human being as well? I think you can, and I think a lot of the best performers do that. So if you think about the RMA team that you referred earlier on, one of the guys in the team, Paul McGrain, that probably doesn't get enough credit for what he achieved on or off the pitch, he's a well-rounded guy. He's a guy who achieves the highest level in sport, the highest level in business. He's a very good dad. He's a very good husband. He's an amazing son. He's a very good friend. He's a very moral guy in terms of the impact he makes in the community. So there's a guy who has done a lot of really significant things. Now, it's how we measure success, Shane. If we measure success in terms of who's won the most, let's say, majors or who's won the most money, or is it the guy who influences most in the community? Yeah, I I would think it's the latter, obviously. But well, it depends. On but how does you does does society think like that? I I'm not sure they do. I think we have a very we have a strange. Sometimes I think we you know we 
get our priorities wrong when it comes to measuring right. success. Exactly. I think you're right. I think we look at the, the sports icons too much in terms of you know how successful they are. They might be successful on the sports pitch or on the golf course, but there's a lot of people in Irish society or around the world amongst the Irish diaspora that are maybe listening today will realise that success is not just how much books you have in your bank account. Success is really more about how much impact you make on people's lives. Mm. Do you influence a generation of people to be stepping up a potential as Keely Taylor has done? So even though Keely's been beat in the last few weeks, this lady has single-handedly almost inspired an entire generation of Irish women around the world. This lady is a phenomenal performer and a phenomenal cultural architect. Okay, um, let's get to your last book and it's picked from a, a similar field but this is maybe a, a little bit different. The Brain That Changes Itself, Stories of Personal Triumph from the Frontiers of Brain Science by Norman, is it Dodge? Exactly. Tell us about this book. Well, when I read this book, to say that it was a paradigm change in me would be an understatement. I couldn't believe it. Well, what did you do when you read this? Were you still a player or was this after you retired? Uh, I would say I'm always a player. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, it, was, it was just in my last year with Armagh. And it really got me to think incredibly differently. It shifted my thinking. It almost dragged my thinking in a different way about what is possible if we only learn how to optimise the brain. And he speaks in really good detail about examples around the world for people who've had big brain injuries who basically rewired their brains. People who are born with no left-hand side of their brain who still operate optimally in terms of how they deal with different people. So it's a transformational book. It gets you to think completely differently and yet we still get confined by our own thinking. It expands and explodes our thinking about possibilities, as you say, about brain frontiers. Okay, so this is a book that, I mean, it looks at our, it looks at our brains, how they work and how we can improve our brains, is it? Or improve our brain power or is that... Is that too simplistic? So I suppose in, in early research in neuroscience, there was very much a philosophy that the brain was like almost a machine. After a certain period in our lives, it was rigid. It couldn't be changed that much. It was stuck. However, this guy proves with all the neuroscientists around the world and all the thought leaders that our brain is much more malleable than that. That even after very significant injury or stroke, for example, our brain can be taught how to rewire itself. Now, I'm not in any way trying to, let's say, talk about anybody at home who hasn't got any significant injuries that they can transform everything overnight. I'm not saying that. But they have yeah, you can't proven, become Einstein or anything overnight. No, not yeah. at all. But they, can, they have proven now how our brain can be rewired, again, using some very, very interesting exercises, brain training exercises, and they've created a computer program that allows kids and adults to use very simple exercises to train their brain, and in essence, to get the neurons firing in a different way, and therefore to learn different skills or learn different techniques. Okay, five fascinating choices, um, and I'll just run through them again. The Pure Sport by John Kremer and Aidan Moore, The Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galway, Driven From Within by Michael Jordan, The Power of the Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy, and The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Dodge. Um, you, you're no doubt aware there are people that are sceptics about sports psychology. I'm thinking of a guy who I'm, I've no doubt you've probably marked over the years, Joe Brawley, <laughs> who would, um, you know, he'd be he, and has been quite scathing about sports psychology. What would your response be to that? I wouldn't disrespect anybody who's scathing or who's sceptical. That's their opinion. What I'm very fortunate to know is and to understand and see it in the best athletes in the world, like Brian O'Driscoll, the impact that psychology can have on transforming the performance. So that's what I choose to focus in on. That's what I choose to invest my energy. I invest my energy in the people who are hungry and humble to learn and improve. Okay. Because I, I, I don't know if you Joe had a piece a couple of weeks ago, actually, where he talked about meeting Kieran McGinney. And he was praising him as a player and as a leader. But I think he said, a little like Roy Keane, he found it difficult to tolerate 
other people who didn't come up to those standards and who weren't as driven as he was. I think that's probably what he was saying. Would you go along with that or do you want to bite on that one? I'd absolutely bite on that one. I've, I've played along with Kieran McGinney for maybe 20 years uh, in my adult life from the time I was a kid. Incredible leader. I, I know that Joe was really, really scathing of Kieran in, in that article. I suppose I was flipping on his head. I would say Kieran was really strong at getting those guys that weren't really stepping up the full potential to believe. He was really strong at coaching those guys, mentoring those guys, putting his arm around their shoulder. Yes, sometimes driving them on in the change room or in the training pitch or in the gym. So Kieran was a guy who really was a cultural architect in that squad. I say it without any doubt. I've also played against Joe Brawley, uh, whether it was Armal playing as Dury or actually playing for Ulster, obviously. Joe Brawley was a talented player. He was a skillful player. But if you're asking me who would I rather walk into the Coliseum alongside, there's no question. I'd be walking alongside Kieran McGinney. I'd be walking behind him. Okay. Fantastic stuff. Really interesting uh, having your company. Enda McNulty, a sports psychologist. Thanks indeed for joining us. It's been a pleasure, Shane. Thanks for your time. And thank you for listening to another episode of Top 5 Books. Lots more interesting guests and book recommendations in your podcast feed if you're subscribed or following us on your podcast player. So if you're listening on iTunes, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to the podcast. You might even give us a rating uh, if you've indeed enjoyed any of what you've heard. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Chains Top 5 Books.